Hey everyone, Eric here. We're really excited about a new AI show from Turpentine called Autopilot, hosted by Will Summerlin. This podcast explores the adoption and rollout of AI in the industries that drive the economy and the dynamic tech founders bringing rapid scalable change to slow moving industries. From law to hardware to aviation, Will interviews founders backed by Benchmark, Greylock, YC, and more to learn how they're automating at the frontiers in entrenched industries. Click on the link in the description to subscribe to Autopilot. Then we saw how difficult it is to train models on a lot of GPUs doing distributed computing. So our goal, it's still our goal, was to simplify that, to simplify the way data scientists can train big models. Right now, you have these open source models where you can train them on your data and you you don't need tens of thousands of GPUs to do that, right? Open source lambda too, it's free for, for research and commercial users, as they say. That's really, really exciting. Hello, and welcome to The Cognitive Revolution, where we interview visionary researchers, entrepreneurs, and builders working on the frontier of artificial intelligence. Each week, we'll explore their revolutionary ideas, and together, we'll build a picture of how AI technology will transform work, life, and society in the coming years. I'm Nathan LeBenz, joined by my co-host, Eric Torenberg. Hello, and welcome back to The Cognitive Revolution. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Ronen Dar, CTO and co-founder of Run AI, an Israel-based company that helps enterprises train and deploy AI models by optimizing their GPU usage. With companies around the world racing to adopt next-generation AI systems, we first discuss Run AI's technology and what differentiates it from other solutions in the market, before then getting Ronen's perspective on today's market for AI chips. From the ongoing shortage, which he expects to go on for a while, at least, to the process and best practices by which companies secure their compute capacity, to the relative prices across major providers, the prospects for chip makers other than NVIDIA to meet the soaring demand, the geopolitics of chip production, including the view from Israel on the U.S.-China rivalry, and finally, the prospects for so-called compute governance to effectively control the pace of AI development, whether in China or anywhere else around the world. As I mentioned on our July 4th episode, one goal we have for the second half of the year is to speak to more researchers, builders, and entrepreneurs who are working on AI outside of the United States. And this conversation with Ronen, who combines deep technical expertise with a global strategic outlook, was a great first step in that direction. If you have any other suggestions, please do let us know. You can always email us at tcr at turpentine.co or DM me on Twitter, or should I say, x.com, where I am at LeBenz. Finally, for now, I encourage everyone who hasn't already to circle back to my AI scouting report, which is posted exclusively on our YouTube channel. It really is the best way that I know to get up to speed on the fundamentals of AI progress and the most important recent development trends. And it's been gratifying to see that the YouTube audience seems to agree. With that, I hope you enjoyed this enlightening conversation about the physical substrate Powering the AIs of the Future with Dr. Ronen Dar of Run AI. Ronen Dar of Run AI, welcome to the Cognitive Revolution. Hey, I'm good to be here. So I'm excited to uh, talk to you about all things AI workloads, GPUs, orchestrating them, and kind of the future of where we're going as really a, a global AI user base and market over the next year or two. For context, you are the CTO and co-founder of this company uh, based in Israel, Run AI. So for starters, you know, tell us about the, the company and, and what sort of AI workloads you're orchestrating for folks. So we run AI. As you said, we're based in Tel Aviv, Israel, but we have people all around the world. You know, and we have offices in New York as well, and California as well. And as you said, I'm not with California. And so I'm spending a lot of my time here in the US. And okay, so we so we run AI, and uh, we started in early 2018. We're starting to run since then. So with an AI infrastructure software company, and we help companies and um, to train and deploy AI models. We're doing a lot of it. Uh, stuff to orchestrating AI workloads and orchestrating GPUs. And I think um, we're bringing in a, a lot of technology very close to the GPUs to the GPU level. And, and, and to the cloud native world 
Kubernetes was really about technologies and things to up and optimizing the usage of GPUs and optimizing how their workloads are being orchestrated and scheduled in the, in the cloud and environments. And we bring a lot of tools for MM teams to easily deploy training models. And we're working with big enterprises right now. Our solution is quite horizontal. So we're working with big enterprises in the game industry with uh, Sony as well. Customers with working with the finance industry, the VNO and Venom customers. We're working with research institutes or MIT, UPenn, the research on top of Run Reality. And we're on, we're seeing this exciting, exciting things that are happening in our space. We see it for the last six, seven years, and that amazing stuff happening right now. So it's very fun to be in the place that we'll be. we are. Maybe give us a little bit more of the history because it's funny, you know, it's only been five years, right, that you've since you founded the company, but obviously a lot has changed. The types of models that were available to run and the kind of scale of training runs that people were attempting in 2018 is obviously, you know, much smaller than what we have today. So what was kind of the, you know, the market that you anticipated going after that inspired you to get involved in starting a company? And then how has that, you know, how has the actual market as it's shaped up deviated from your expectations? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So in fact, right, we started in 2018. And, and when we started, it was all about computer vision applications, right? There. So I think the big breakthrough in the industry for machine learning and deep learning happened around 2012, 2013 with the ImageNet competition and researchers of Toronto University training AlexNet and doing this big breakthrough in how machine learning models, deep learning models can get insights from images and videos. And back then, I think and AlexNet was trained on two GPUs. That was the big breakthrough back then in 2012. So two GPUs, right, to train the state-of-the-art models from, from scratch. And then we saw a, an interesting trend of people training bigger models with more parameters using more data and, and using more GPUs. And so a few years later, around 2015, ResNet came out and ResNet was already trained on, on hundreds of GPUs. And so we saw this trend of computer vision models being scared from a few GPUs to train the state of the art models to, to hundreds of GPUs. So 100x uh, increase in the requirements to train state of the art models back then. So we started running it back then. We saw how difficult it is to train models on a lot of GPUs doing distributed computing. So our goal it's still our goal was to simplify that, to simplify the way data scientists can train big models and just to allow them to train huge models very easily, just one click on a dome distributed computer. So we started with that. And then we saw that there are huge problems around distributed training, but around also how GPUs are being utilized, how GPUs are being orchestrated, and how MLTs are getting access to GPUs. So we saw a lot of inefficiency there, a lot of complexities around just getting access to GPUs. And, uh, and we, solved, we solved those problems as well. We bought, as I said before, we built a lot of technology around that aspect of just getting access to GPUs and utilizing them efficiently. And, and I think we saw in 2017, 2018, with a new breakthrough in natural language processing. So we saw again the same trend that we saw in computer vision. Uh, people trained state-of-the-art models, NLP models, language models, in 2018 on hundreds of GPUs. So I think GPT-1 was changed, I think, around hundreds, uh, using our hundreds of models. This stage, GPT-4, just according to rumors, right? Now GPT-4 is closed source. So according to rumors, GPT-4 was trained on more than 25. GPUs. So in a four, five years time frame, we went from training state of the art models on hundreds of GPUs to tens of thousands of GPUs. So another 100 increase 
in their computing environments to truly state of our models. Models become bigger, more data, more compute. So we see this trend once again, and we see now a lot of companies are seeing what can be done with generative AI and language model, and they are rushing to yeah, rushing to 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 bring that those capabilities into their organizations. For sure, AI is going to transform industries, and and people see that. And I think people need to take action and, and, and bring AI into their organizations, how their business, how their business, how their industry is going to be transformed by AI and, and work on that. So we are helping our customers to do that. Now it's about a large language models, about generative AI models and how to train them. A lot of people are still training you know, computer vision models and models that are much smaller than those language models. But that, those, those models will stay, so we're helping with those models as well. So where do you play in the overall stack or architecture of all this kind of stuff? And I mean that maybe in a couple of different ways, like conceptually, there is obviously a significant divide between training and inference. And then also there's kind of, you know, vertical integration, right? You partner with NVIDIA. I wasn't quite able to figure out, like, are your customers primarily like managing their own physical computing resources and you're a software layer that that complements that or do you have you know deployments across all the you know the major public clouds you, you know describe kind of where how far the uh, the tentacles reach so we can run our platform wherever the customers want their, their GPUs to run so uh, we ask customers to run a ball platform on premises and we support learning app solutions so we, we have a lot of and at the sense custom we are as is with no correction to the format. And we have a lot of customers in the cloud and managing small clusters of GPUs with tens of GPUs. And we have customers running thousands of GPUs in just one cluster, managing all AWS for all where we are also customers in Azure and Google. So we are we're the so so called like hybrid solution. So with Rana, you can get just one platform which, with which you can run workloads on-premises in the cloud, in any cloud. And it's all for the same interface or the same, or with the same tools. And so we're, we're, in the stack, we're, we're running with Kubernetes, with cloud natives, so we can run on any a Kubernetes label. So it can be Kubernetes, Kubernetes, you can run on any managed Kubernetes solution. Of the cloud providers, or with Reddit or Chief, and then it uses a manual things. They can use our tools to train their models or, or deploy their models. Right, in principle, for training any front. and and we're really taking an integrable uh, approach. So we we can integrate with any actually with any tool that runs on top of Kubernetes. So we we're working with a lot of uh, tools in the ML ecosystem. Uh, experiment tracking tools, other tools, orchestration, workflow orchestration tools. So being open, I think it's really important because the field moves so fast and new tools are being created every day. So that was one of our, yeah, that was one of our uh, weight workers, right? We want to be as open as possible. A lot of that sounds, you know, for we just had uh, another episode with a couple of uh, guests from Mosaic ML. And, uh, you know, I've, I've made a couple of jokes about the cognitive revolution bump that uh, obviously, you know, led them to a, a good outcome very shortly thereafter. I don't want to get overly bogged down in kind of comparing, you know, one company against another, but how would you kind of compare and contrast the business that you've built versus how you kind of see Mosaic? Is it just the sort of thing where business is growing, you know, the industry is growing so fast that you guys don't even worry about competition? Or do you see like that there are kind of head-to-heads and you have like meaningfully, you know, different positioning in the market? Okay, so Mosaic, first of all, they started after us. So they started at New York two and a half years ago, and we started five years ago. Mosaic is really uh, a clear focus on generative AI and large language models. We're more general than that. But I think that the, the main thing is that we, we, we came and we built our platform very much from the bottom up. So we came a lot 
we've changed from the GPU itself on the hardware itself. And we saw all the, the issues and problems with utilizing GPUs. So we really, when we built our platform, we really understood very well the software stack that runs on top of GPUs. And we saw the limitations of, 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 those, of those software libraries, software, software frameworks. Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. OmniKey uses generative AI to enable you to launch hundreds of thousands of ad iterations that actually work, customized across all platforms with a click of a button. I believe in OmniKey so much that I invested in it, and I recommend you use it too. Use Cogrev to get a 10% discount. And we built two main components, I think. So one of the components, you know, I'm a CTO, so I like to run the technology. So we, we built it. We, one thing that we built is GPU optimization. So we made what we call like an API level of virtualization, CUDA virtualization. So we sit at the CUDA level and we intercept CUDA calls and we control access to GPUs. And we do that for enabling better access to GPUs. So with, with that layer, workloads can share a single GPU. So we have this feature called GPU factorization. So we can factorize one GPU and can be shared. And we know how to, to swap memory between CPU and GPU. So people can all provision GPUs to run video models or more models on the same GPU. So essentially we bring a lot of capabilities into utilizing GPUs much better. The second component is more of scheduling and orchestration. So we saw that Kubernetes is the state of the art infrastructure and management framework today with clouds. But Kubernetes was built for running microservices on, on commodity CPU. Whereas AI workloads are totally different. AI workloads are really intensive or they are on GPUs. There's a lot of experimentation in terms of like how data scientists and machine learning engineers are running their workloads. And, and we saw that there are a lot of scheduling capabilities missing from Kubernetes that are actually available in other fields other states like high performance computing, third HPC, third um, scheduling capabilities on the Hadoop ecosystem. Young scheduler is an amazing scheduler that was built now like 10 years ago, but it brought a lot of scheduling capabilities that were really needed for running the Spark workloads. So we took two concepts on those worlds, from HPC and Young, and we brought them into the Kubernetes world. So we're bringing a lot of batch scheduling capabilities ability to preempt workloads, to queue workloads, and and, and 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 do gap scheduling. So a lot of advanced scheduling, and at, at the end, what it allows teams to do, it allows them to, first of all, get um, a guaranteed quota, a way to get access to their GPUs. But they are not limited to that guaranteed quota. They can always go above the quota and use more GPUs and run more workloads. There are available GPUs in their clusters. There are idle GPUs. We allow other people in the in the in the organization to use those GPUs. So essentially those scheduling capabilities are bringing again a lot of efficiency into GPU clusters and much more availability of GPUs. So suddenly MFTs becomes much easier for them to get access to more GPUs very easily on demand. So increasing the efficiency of how GPUs are being utilized. And we're kissing the availability of GPUs. And, and availability of GPUs is a serious aspect, a serious problem. And so I think that is really unique for us. The fact that we bring in a lot of efficiency and a lot of um, increasing availability of GPUs, I don't think that anyone else in the world is doing that. So we're bringing that. We are also bringing in a lot of simplicity. So we're helping MFTs to easily train their models and easily deploy them. So we're investing heavily, we invested heavily, still investing in providing tools and ways to abstract the complexity involved with just running workloads and just training, training models and deploying them. So I think with LLTs, without the right infrastructure solution, without the right platform, they, they will spend like 90% of their time on infrastructure, on, on setting up libraries, setting up drives, setting up a lot of stuff. And for them to scale up, or scale out their experiment is really difficult. If they are running just one experiment and they want to run it instead of one, one GPU on, on another GPU, 
tons of different styles. Typically, the difficult point, or if they want around a lot of experiments in parallel, so scaling out out those experiments. That's also really difficult. So we bring a lot of tools to allow uh, researchers and AI practitioners to iterate faster, run, scale out, scale up and experiments very easily. So for us, I think it's about simplicity and about bringing a lot of efficiency. And then the efficiency part, I think no one else uh, provides the value that we we, we bring. We have customers that are that had four X and even more than that, the trees of their GPU utilization increase in their GPU availability. And so together with the simplicity, I think uh, we're bringing a really a unique offering to enterprises uh, on the world. Yeah, okay, cool. That's very helpful. And it is certainly in the context of the shortage that, uh, and I want to kind of you know turn in a second toward just kind of the macro context that's driving you know all of the the concern and focus on utilization, right? These things are not, they're not cheap by default and uh, they're getting bid up at the current moment. So that puts you in a, in a position to, you know, be even more valuable. Am I understanding correctly that like this sort of assumes a dedicated capacity? Cause when you say like it could be more efficient, that could mean, you know, if you're buying like on demand access that you buy less, but as you talked about it, it sounded more like there's an assumption of, certain, you know, either physical infrastructure that a, that a client has, or at least some sort of contractual commitment that now they have a certain amount of capacity, let's make the most of it and not have our data scientists, you know, waiting around when they could be uh, getting to work. So that's another good question. So for what we see, that big enterprises, big organizations, they usually secure access to GPUs. So just getting access to GPUs to a lot of GPUs that could be really difficult. If you go to your AWS account manager and you ask them to increase the limit of your uh, GPUs, uh, GPU instances, so uh, you can try and do that. And if you want to increase your, your limits, you know, going from 10 GPUs to 1,000 GPUs, for example, that's a big deal. You know, you, you get a lot of questions while, while trying to do that. So, so. I think just securing access to GPUs and having data available for you, that's a, that's a big problem. So it, it, it makes enterprises right now and buy and reserve those GPUs. So we see a lot of enterprises using reserve and instances of GPUs, huge clusters of, of GPUs. That's for enterprises, that's what we see. Social reserve is something that uh, is being done when it comes to GPUs. Now, and when it comes to smaller companies, and for them, on-demand access to GPUs is totally relevant, right? Yeah, many startups won't want to do a big investment upfront and buy GPUs. So many of them are using on-demand, right? Or maybe it's a combination of reserves and on-demand. But then in that case, we have also a lot of startup companies work with us and our customers. In that aspect, then you, what we get is clusters that are elastic. So those clusters can grow or shrink. Maybe they have like multiple clusters in different regions and just deciding on where to run the workload on each on, 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 on which region and how to get to five available GPUs in the right regions around the workload, that could be a challenge. So we're helping also customers just to get access to clusters that are, uh, might be available in different regions and they might be a dynamic cluster, but right? you can skip up or down. So for sure it's uh, it's about reserve and about on-demand instances as well. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit more about access and kind of the nature of the market. And I don't have a lot of experience in this for context, and I imagine most of our listeners don't, right? If you're, unless you're, you know, one of a, a small pocket of people at a company that's going to make this kind of capital investment or commitment, you know, you're probably like me and you are mostly paying the hourly rate for GPUs, you know, as you go. And that's worked fine for me. I haven't done anything at huge, huge scale, but obviously the biggest companies in the world, you know, are kind of waking up to the fact that there is this shortage. Maybe for starters, can you just tell me like, how do you understand the shortage? How bad is the shortage? Like, are we, are we now in a period of like eternal GPU shortage, like until further notice? And what, what do people actually go through to buy like I, I i in googling this it's not super or using even perplexity to search for information about this 
it's not super obvious. Like you can go get one here on eBay and then there's like, so, uh, you know, an, an H100 on Amazon in a random spot, but it's not really obvious. Like how the, the big buyers in, interact with NVIDIA in the first place to even get, you know, bulk orders. So maybe you could demystify some of that for us a little bit. I think, first of all, I think the GPU shortage relevant to whoever buys GPUs, you know, for their on-premises environment, right? Or, or then for companies, people trying to get access to the high end, the most advanced, the, most, the newest GPUs in the cloud. So also getting access to those newest GPUs, that can be a challenge if you need a lot of GPUs. I think what we have seen in the last six months is that the demand to GPUs increased amazingly fast. It grew in a way that Nvidia didn't anticipate. OpenAI came out with ChatGPT and they showed to the entire world what can be done with the LLMs and generative AI, right? And a lot of companies, including Microsoft and all the cloud providers, and include their own mass with his new company, and he went and bought 10,000 GPUs just a few months after ChatGPT went out. So a lot of companies and all the cloud providers went to buy more GPUs on NVIDIA. So that created a big jump in the demand for GPUs. With hardware, compared to software, it's much more difficult and much more complex to supply the demand when you have unexpected changes in the demand. So that was happened. And for NVIDIA, they need to change the the way and the pace of which they manufacture those GPUs. So we're speaking about like real machines that are actually manufacturing those GPUs. To manufacture more GPUs, you need more machines. And that takes time to build, to, to set up those machines and let them operate. So supplying that demand and bridging on that gap between the demand and the supply when it comes to other, that takes some time. And I'm sure NVIDIA are working on it. And I'm sure that they are increasing the pace in which they manufacture their GPUs. Um, I think that the GPU shortage um, will go away with, with time. Right? I don't know how much time it will take your shortage to go away. But um, a lot of companies are still now waiting for their GPUs, for the GPUs that they order for. Yeah. And H1 out, so H1 is the newest GPU right? people can buy. And all others are, are, are waiting in line. So that's the GPU shortage. I think it's really interesting because of what we see, we spoke about the trend of using more and more compute to train AI models. And I think for the first time, we're seeing also a huge increase in the demand for GPU power for inference for running those models in production. So. LNMs in generative AI models are so huge that usually they don't fit into the memory of one GPU. So if you want to run state-of-the-art models with hundreds of billions of parameters, typically you want a few GPUs for that, like four GPUs, eight GPUs, maybe more, more than that. But I think now we're seeing a Canon increase in the computer requirements, all these workers, and that's significant. That's significant for every company that is actually uh, providing and running models like OpenAI and like uh, GitHub with their co-pilots, right? I'm sure they are at other scale. So Microsoft between OpenAI and, and GitHub uh, with their co-pilot, they need to manage a lot of GPUs. So for inference, for sure, but uh, contributed to the demand for GPUs was very significant. And I think what we've seen is that the pace in which AI application and AI innovation is happening is much faster than the pace in which GPU or the hardware is being moved forward as we progress. Then it's to the to more though in that related to to other other issues as well. But but AI, the AI space AI innovation moves at the are exceptionally fast speeds, much faster than the capability of new hardware. But with that, when that happens, you're getting 
more and more demand for the demand for hardware. And then you're getting these problems of demand grows too fast. The supply doesn't able to, to catch up. And so I think that it's, I, my prediction is that this is not the last time that we are seeing GPU shortage. I don't know when will happen. The, the next GPU shortage, if or when, I think it will happen again. But now it's like a temporary thing. It will be closed. But I think that it will happen again. GPU shortage. It has major consequences. Yeah, I think it has major consequences on the industry, on how the companies are operating, on the cost of AI. So a lot of interesting aspects related to that. So how does it actually work today if you want to go buy, start your own little cluster, right? If you are, let's say you're in, I'm not sure what, you know, a relevant threshold would be. Obviously, as you said, you know, leading clusters now getting into the tens of thousands inflection, you know, AI just made this headline with a huge raise, I believe with NVIDIA as a backer. And, you know, a lot of that's going to get plowed right back into the chips. So, I mean, at the highest level, there's clearly some like strategic deal making going on where, you know, NVIDIA is kind of investing in the, you know, the people that it's going to be then willing to ship the most chips to. But how does it go if I, if I just want like a hundred H100s or a thousand, do I contract directly with NVIDIA? Is there like a secondary market that that tends to kind of, you know, are there like futures contracts that, that people sort of trade in and then ultimately, because pricing seems fairly dynamic, right? Like I'm seeing headlines that are like H100s now cost $40,000. Presumably that's not, you know, NVIDIA changing the, the, you know, I couldn't even find a price on their website. Uh, so like, how, yeah, how does that actually work in, in practice to, to go through this buying process. There are a few decisions that one needs to make. I think one of the first decisions is around where to invest. Like if to invest in a own previous environment and just buy GPUs and then operate those GPUs by yourself or whether to go with a cloud solution. And when I'm saying buying GPUs and operating a, 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 an on-premise environment, that is certainly on-premise environment. Maybe also a co-location or someone is managing your, your GPUs in some co-location environment. But still, it's, it's not managed by a cloud provider. It's managed by a co-location provider. So co-location or premise that's one thing. Cloud is another thing. Deciding there, there, there are some trade-offs on uh, cost. And there are these views, you know, an uh, uh, interesting, uh, interesting trade-off there. But that's the first decision. So if you go and you you choose going for cloud, then you need to choose the the cloud provider. You, know, you can actually you could choose multiple cloud providers. It's not necessarily has to be uh, AWS, uh, Google, or Azure. Uh, right now we have amazing uh, security cloud providers, modern cloud providers like Lambda Labs and that call. We we're working with both of them. And both of them have amazing offering um, the GPUs and then provide access to GPUs. So you can go with that as well. So that's one thing. On premises, that's a totally different story. Then you need to, to decide on from who to buy the, the GPU. It could be from a video representative or it could be from installers. That's another story. And then it's about choosing the right um, GPU type, right? Uh, whether you want to go to the highest and you know the newest gpus gauge 100 or you saying okay i'm good enough with the uh, with secure access to the v100 or a100 that would be good enough for me and the cost will be uh, reasonable so i think there are some trade-offs around that there are some trade-offs of not just relating to gpus there are some trade-offs relating to storage where are you storing all your data how how performance is it and questions around networking if you're running a uh, small scale experiments or maybe networking is not that important for section three or or even anything that those are interconnects are connecting between GPUs. So maybe those are that important for you. But if you do train with models on multiple GPUs or multiple machines, then networking becomes really crucial for your performance. Then you need to get some decision steps as well. So so it's, 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 it's those decisions combined cost, performance, needs of users. So it's really, 
yeah, so we're seeing customers doing just building huge on-premises environment and still securing access to GPUs in the cloud. And we see customers doing just just cloud secure access to GPUs in different clouds. But the world right now, I think everyone is assuming multi-cloud, hybrid cloud. There is 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 the optional and it's actually the preferred solution. Because uh, you don't want to just lock yourself to one cloud provider. So we're seeing enterprises choosing more than two providers for the on-premise and a cloud solution. Prices today an A100, what I saw on Amazon, it was like $7,000 and H100, I'm seeing $40,000 in headlines, but I'm, I'm feeling like that is probably more a reseller price, not like what people are mostly paying. Could you give us guide, general guidance on like what these things actually cost in the market today? If it's a you know, cloud prices, then they are all elevated there, right? You cloud providers are yeah, publishing the, the, the prices. So it's A100 can cost, why a machine can cost between $30 to $40 an hour. So that's really expensive. H100 will be more expensive. They are still not available on AWS. I think they are available on Azure, for example. H100 are available on smaller cloud providers. The COVID already offering H100. And so the, you need to pay a lot for the, the newest. Uh, uh, GPUs, they will be more performant. So it's it's important to understand that it's not just about the absolute cost of, of the GPUs, it's also about the performance. Because if you GPU cost two times more, but your workloads are running four times faster on those GPUs, so yeah, it's actually like the best solution for you, right? It's both cheaper and faster. So H100 is according to NVIDIA benchmarks, much better, much more performant on the, compared to A100 and previous GPUs. Usually GPUs become more and more performant, right? The actual numbers around the performance increase are really dependent on the, dependent on the workloads themselves. But they also come up with uh, with costs with higher costs. Now, when it comes to on-premise, if you go to NVIDIA and buy uh, GPU state-of-the-art with DJX machines, then you can end up paying um, hundreds of thousands of dollars for one machine. It would be though very high-end, very performing uh, GPU machine, but you pay like hundreds of thousands of dollars. One quick follow-up on the on-demand pricing because. When I was researching for this, I found Lambda Labs seemed to have the lowest A100 price that I was able to find online, which was just over a dollar. I think it's a dollar ten an hour, and they quote AWS prices at being four dollars an hour. Were you maybe citing something different there, or is that accurate in in your understanding? Okay, so I said between thirty to forty dollars an hour for a whole GPU machine with. Eight, eight, eight GPUs, eight packs. So that's on AWS, right? Yeah. So with, that's one of the advantages of Lambda. Lambda that's really very significant, uh, significantly lower prices. That's one of the advantages for sure. How do you see? It? Well, how is that sustainable? I mean, I understand there being a big delta between making an upfront investment in an on-premise physical hardware, even if you're co-locating it, whatever versus you know the flexibility of the cloud but it's surprising to me that there would be a 4x difference especially in the presence of companies like yours that are multi-cloud and help you kind of you know optimize and shift around how do you understand that 4x difference in on-demand pricing that's an amazing question you know i, I don't know i really don't know it's an amazing 4x i agree it's the uh... It's a lot. It's a big difference. We can just guess, but but I think it's a, it's a, it's an interesting question to ask them. That I think for sure. Yeah, their H one hundred pricing is two dollars an hour, basically. So they're selling the H one hundred, renting the H one hundred at still half though of the AWS A one hundred price, which is definitely pretty confusing. Okay, well. Yeah, I'll continue to try to figure that one out. So let's maybe move to, and this, I don't know if this will be kind of in scope or 
out of scope for your business, because if I understand the technology, as you've described it, you're at the CUDA layer, which is the NVIDIA proprietary software layer, which I would say many people from what I understand, and I haven't explored other alternatives, but from what I understand, that is often said to be one of the huge value drivers is that the software actually works. And then you're kind of injecting another layer into that uh, kind of strategic advantage that NVIDIA has and even adding more functionality. But I was kind of also curious, like, what other chips are relevant today or what kind of other chip efforts are relevant today? Obviously, NVIDIA has, you know, got huge demand and the stock price reflects that and people are are waiting for their things. Like, do you guys see yourselves trying to partner with other chip makers? And, you know, whether you do or don't, I'd, I'd love to get your take on kind of what other chip makers are going to be relevant over the next few years as AI just continues to presumably scale and scale and scale. As you said, we're sitting in different layers of the software stack. So we're sitting in the CUDA layer and we're sitting at the Kubernetes layer. I'm sitting on top of Kubernetes layer with all the tools that are running. So we're sitting in different layers and we're working very closely with hardware players and we're working very closely with Kubernetes providers that can create both cloud providers. And I think that market for AI chips is, is really interesting. There are a few players, as I see. So NVIDIA, of course, people say that NVIDIA has 87% of the market. That's a, that's a big number. The players in the market, as I see, first of all, they are cloud providers. So AWS and Google, they have their own uh, chips. And both of them are building and working on those chips in Israel. So Israel engineers are amazing. They are really good with uh, with with hardware and they are really good with software as well. And so Amazon and Google are building their chips here in Israel. And Intel as well. Nvidia is also investing in Israel heavily. And they bought Melanox. Or that they're talking is an Israeli company. So that's all fabless design, right? There's no actual are there fabs going in as as well? Or I'm understanding this to be the design layer. No, that's fabless. That's fabless. That's that's really interesting. Now Intel is now Intel becomes like so Intel now now is uh, Intel always had their own fabs for their own usage and now they're going to uh, the original where they offer their fabs to others. But that's, a, that's a, another interesting topic. Then, but in terms of the AI chips, all of those players are still, they are fabulous. Uh, AWS, they have already uh, chips for trading and chips for reference offered in their cloud. Google is already for several years, I think more than five years already. Their TPUs is offered in their cloud. There are players like, uh, like AMD and Intel. So AMD really is a strong competitor because their GPUs are used in a significant way in the gaming industry. So they they are strong there, and their GPUs are really good. The technology is really good, so they are a strong competitor. We're starting to see more and more AMD usage. We have customers running workloads on AMD, and Intel is also investing. Intel also investing in Israel with those chips. And there are startups, like uh, there are startups, a few of them, that are also uh, offering their own uh, chips online. And that's interesting. And as you said, I think NVIDIA right now is controlling the market. It controls the market because of their software stack, and that of because of the software ecosystem. So it starts with a good 11, but it goes much beyond that. So NVIDIA is investing a lot of efforts in just getting out a lot of software software library, software framework, software tools uh, in the ecosystem just to enable AI to enable more and more workloads to run on GPUs. But as I said, it's really easy to run workloads today on GPUs, on VDS GPUs. Sometimes it's more difficult to run them on other chips. But I think with time it will become more and more easier. Uh, easier. But So that, that's the ecosystem. And I think also NVIDIA, really, NVIDIA is a great company. 
the GPUs and the technology that they are really really advanced and they are hopefully what the market will need in like two years or three years after they are already offered right now. So they came up recently with the Gary Salter offering. So that's a new offering and they came up with really interesting technology there and they are offering really big GPUs with a lot of memory. They are really seeing what the market needs. And I think right now the market needs it needs to run huge models with a lot of memory and more becomes like the bottleneck and they have this offering already out and that we go to include that we support those big models. So I think Nvidia is, is, a, is a great company and um, as time will go, we'll see a second player. It will be really interesting to see who will be that second player. So it sounds like AMD, you probably put in the second position right now in terms of at least being a you know a, a proper rival to nvidia we've got the amazon the google tpus microsoft has recently announced that they're designing their own chip too i don't know if i said meta yet but they've had their own chip and have one of the biggest clusters in the world as well what about other companies like samsung didn't come up there tesla do you see those two as potentially big timers Maybe, maybe. And Tesla, you forgot to mention Qualcomm as well. So Qualcomm is also a player that you don't underestimate. And then let's see that like Qualcomm and Samsung, you know, they have their own offering. They might have an interesting offering when it comes to inference and running inference and running models at the edge. That's a market that will continue to grow. And there are opportunities for sure for players that are are traditionally good in those markets like Qualcomm and, and Samsung selling the edge and devices. But you know, the AI market is really different than, than previous markets. First of all, because software is really important. It's not just hardware. And these days you buy hardware and software, you must have the software at a stack on top of it. It's like a it's it's a critical enabler. And and also the AI in space is moving so fast. So you know that the hardware manufacturers need to work fast as well. They need to they need to provide more and more innovation in a faster pace. So so in this AI space, I think it's any different than compared to previous markets that we saw. Are there any other kind of smaller or specialist companies that you would suggest to keep an eye on? Like one that comes to mind for me because we had uh, CEO Andrew Feldman on as a guest was Cerebras Systems, and they've made, as I'm sure you're aware, the biggest ever chip, you know, very different approach, obviously. Do you see them or other kind of smaller, you know, what had been more niche chip companies being able to grow in a significant way? Yeah, Cerebras, they have an amazing offering, actually, very unique, right? They have this huge chip. I haven't tried it. <laughs> But but it's really unique and it's really differentiated. And you know, let's see, let's see. Maybe they might have a little opportunity. I think that the AI chip market is going to be huge, and even small players will get you know huge uh, can get huge revenues. So this market is going to be huge with no doubts, and so there are opportunities there with no doubts. How about just the rest of the world? Like, what do you think is kind of the state of or the outlook maybe for Chinese companies, any European companies. I mean, there's, um, you know, they kind of want to get your take at a higher level as well on just the geopolitics of all of this. You know, everybody's kind of waking up to the fact that this is some somewhat of a strategic resource, right? I mean, it's maybe not quite oil, but it's increasingly, I, can, I think, kind of thought of as the next oil. Do you think countries, you know, like China or, you know, blo- trading blocks like Europe can develop their own champions that can enter this top tier over the next few years? Or is that just, they're just too far behind and it's just still impossible? Listen, this, this is a great question. And, and, and a couple of years ago, people spoke the, the opposite, right? People spoke about all the innovation coming out from China, right? People spoke about all the research and all the academic papers coming out from China and people said, you know, what's going on with the U.S.? You know, U.S. is behind. That was the story two or three years ago, right? The U.S. is behind China. And see what happened. I think like 
what happened in the last six months or, or one year, that was amazing. It really showed the strength of the, the Silicon Valley, I mean, all, this, all the, the, the innovation and the technology coming from California uh, and with the open AI coming out with ChatGPT. So I think the US really showed the strength in the last uh, six to, to one year. So we, we showed, you know, these moved so fast. I think China now is the arm. The geopolitical issues, right? That's 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 a really interesting uh, topic from different angles, right? On where the the chip angle, without with this chip war happening, right? It's uh, really interesting. Chips are strategic, not just to companies, to countries, and we're seeing this chip war with China. Really interesting stuff uh, around the AI. I think there is a race right now. There is a race in the Western world, but there is a race with China as well. And it's the amazing thing that it's just starting. If things are moving fast, so, so rapidly, right? You could think, like, for example, on the OpenAI with their ChatGPT, a few months ago, I heard that, you know, everyone spoke about how good ChatGPT is compared to others, right? That it's much, much better than anything else in the market. And I think now I'm I'm starting to to hear that you know, other model providers provide very good models, make sometimes even better than than uh, than ChatGPT. So I think that things are moving so fast, technology gaps are being closed very fast. Right now, I, my analysis is that China is behind the US, but but you know, I don't know how fast that gap would be closed. Or you think it will be closed? Like, I guess it will be closed, but, but things are moving so fast. It's really, really difficult to predict, I think, right now in the airspace, what will happen in the year of six months, one year Yeah, no, no, unfortunately, I totally agree. It's, um, my, I always say my crystal ball gets real foggy after about six months. <laughs> yeah. I'm right. with you on that for sure. Obviously, I have a US-based perspective. I guess I'd love to kind of hear, do you think, and you spend time here and also in Israel. I'm interested in like, is there a difference in worldview around AI dynamics? You know, here, I think we honestly have a sort of, in my view, counterproductive framing of AI as this, you know, new front in the contest or rivalry between the US and China. And I'm not really comfortable with the idea that we are creating these sort of seemingly, you know, pretty severe escalations along the lines of trying to cut China off from leading edge chips. To me, that seems like it really increases the risk of other kinds of conflict because, you know, for example, if they can't buy any of the chips from Taiwan, you know, then maybe that makes the cost of disrupting the, you know, production in Taiwan uh, much easier for them to bear. Maybe I'm simpleton on that, but how would, you, how would you describe the kind of, you know, watching from maybe not a neutral country, but certainly a country that's, you know, far from both of the, uh, you know, the two would-be hegemonic rivals, how, do, how does the rest of the world see this U.S.-China dynamic? I think, now, from my perspective, the geopolitical issues are really escalating in the last, you know, 10 years. Right, uh, things are being escalated. It's, it's it's China and, and the U.S. You now Israel is a very small country, and we have a lot of uh, political issues and a lot of uh, challenges with our neighbors as well. Right, so we are also really always in a in a need to protect ourselves against our, our uh, other countries that are are threatening us. You might say. So I think that for us, Israel, we used to be in this state of mind that, uh, you know, there, there, there is danger around us and there are countries that are, are, uh, are aiming against us, right? And, and so, yeah, it's a big question. It's a huge question. I think, like, I don't like to see things escalating and uh, geopolitically wise. Uh, but it, it seems that it's going in that direction, right? Do I, but I'm optimistic in my nature, so I always hope the things would become better. It's obviously impossible to characterize Israeli opinion briefly. 
I know there's a lot of disagreement and contention uh, on everything, but you could either you know speak for yourself or try to characterize it however you would. But do you see, do Israelis see you know the the view from this kind of middle part of the world? Does China look like an adversary from there? You know, I mean, obviously there's a lot of kind of local dynamics with neighboring countries, which are much more historically rooted. But like, does China look like an adversary from Israel? From our perspective, Iran is the adversary. Iran is the number one adversary for Israel. And from our perspective, Iran is, is playing with China and they're on the same side. From our perspective, I think that's one of the strengths of Israel and partnership with Israel and the U.S. From our perspective, you know, Iran is uh, the number one, I would say. So, you know, and from that perspective, I think the Israeli people are really see eye to eye with the American people. They don't like to see things escalating, but they also about it. They see the danger, and so I think. For several decades already, the collaboration between Israel and Iran is a bit around that, those, those topics. But as I said, I'm optimistic. I'm always hoping for the best. But AI, for sure, I mean, you know, coming back to AI, AI for sure had an impact on that. Because now it's a race. It's a race. Countries are being, are being armed with AI technology and AI technology is going to change their, their defense space. There's no doubt it's going to transform different space. So for AI, chips are really important at Chitika. So chips are strategic. AI is strategic for countries. In, and we will see, I think, the geopolitical state changes in the next decades. Lots of because of AI. Do you see that this sort of supply control is likely to be viable for con- kind of controlling who can do what with AI? I mean, that could be in the context of China, right? We could say there's these export controls and they can only buy H-800s instead of H-100s. And then I wonder, like, is that really going to work? You know, or is there going to be sort of a some way to get around that either by like, you know, post manufacturing even or, you know, maybe just very clever software uh, work that could circumvent some of these imposed restrictions. And then I also think about that in the context of the just AI safety, you know, dialogue and or dis- discourse in general, people are very kind of hopeful. And I'm not sure how realistic these hopes are that, you know, maybe we could have a sort of know your customer regime for GPUs and you can only buy so many before you got to have a license or a permit to do whatever. Do you feel like this is a sort of controllable enough resource that it's ultimately going to be fruitful to try to control the development of AI through controls on hardware? That's a great point, right? That people are speaking about regulating AI. And so coming from the computer angle, that can be an interesting angle, just controlling access to a compute. So that's what being done right now with the with the cheap war between and um, the U.S. and China, right? They are just controlling the access to the newest GPUs. So China is not allowed to get access to the newest GPUs according to the U.S. regulation, right? So now people are speaking about AI safety and about regulating the progress of AI and regulating the, how AI is being used. And so can that be controlled with, with computer? I don't know. I don't know. Like, because right now to, to train, if you go, if you, I'll become a little bit technical, but if you're training huge models and you try to be like, you know, to, to get to, to state of the art uh, models, then you need a lot of, a lot of compute. Right now, you have these open source models where you can train them on your data and tuning, but you, you don't need uh, tens of thousands of GPUs to do that, right? Just yesterday, Meta, which I love. Now what Meta is doing right now, the open source Llama two, right? Open source Llama two, it's free for 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 research and commercial users, as they say. That's really really exciting. And now if you have those very capable models, open source, and people can take their own data and fine tune those models with that, using that data, they don't need a lot of computers. Then, right? So then, uh, 
control and access to compute becomes less, uh, less relevant, I guess. So it's interesting aspect, you know, regulating AI. I don't think it's an easy question. <laughs> it's, a, it's a really complex one. That's probably uh, a good note for us to leave it on. I know that, you know, regardless of how all this develops and, and there is tremendous uncertainty, you and the team at Run AI will be helping people get the absolute most out of their investment in GPUs. So Dr. Ronan Dar, thank you for being part of the Cognitive Revolution. Thank you, Nathan. That was great fun. Thanks.